I'm going to uh, address from God's Word something that saps energy, robs time, questions relationships, interrogates spouses, prevents rest, demands more relationships than they can give, rearranges your priorities and your schedules, uh, drives many into the shadows of deceit and cover-up, and offers no return on investment. I'm speaking, of course, of fear. And its daily, on-the-clock employee anxiety. Uh, Early uh, during my recent holiday away, uh, I experienced someone very dear to me, gripped, wild-eyed by fear. And I mean gripped to the point where I was holding their hands and staring into their eyes till I prayed that fear would subside. And that experience kept me up all night. And it also would set me sort of on a track in the coming weeks to really consider, as God put it before me, how many decisions I really make in life based on fear. The thought goes, you know, if I don't have this, if I don't protect myself from this, if I don't secure my family with this, if I don't please an important person by saying this or doing this, that I can't preserve what is most precious to me. What I value as most good suddenly becomes most vulnerable. So fear, Sally, is a culprit in so many impotent decisions. Right? It kind of causes our lives to become limp without any kind of firmness or shape. The good news is that God is aware of this issue and is himself the solution to fear. The Gospels actually list approximately 125 imperatives of Jesus, commands of Jesus, times when Jesus says something and puts an exclamation mark on it. And 21 of these are some version of fear not the most of any exclamation marks of Jesus. Fear not. So that's what we're going to talk about in the coming weeks. About four years ago, I stumbled upon a sermon given by an old Puritan pastor named Jonathan Edwards. It was actually the first sermon he had ever delivered. And his thesis, way back in the day, was that a Christian should not fear, but be happy. And his three points were, Our bad things will turn out for good. Our good things can never be taken from us. And the best things are yet to come. Which was absolutely brilliant. The sermon was okay. The points were absolutely brilliant. He had solved the mystery of fear, of anxiety, as an 18-year-old. 18 years old when he gave his first sermon. And those were his three points. Right? Really, I mean, what were you doing at 18? 18, I was trying to cram everything I owned into a Nissan Sentra and taking it from California to Virginia for college, right? That was like my, how am I going to do this? How am I going to get this crock pot into this vehicle so I can have my ramen noodles, right? That was the mystery. There was one other mystery I tried to solve, which was, 
how to devise my university cafeteria visits around the prettiest girls' schedules at our university. Like, how can I work it so that I'm there at right time? Christian girls, of course. Equally yoked. But that, that was like, those were the things I was working on. Thankfully, I've moved from that. Moved on from that. It's good. Not that shallow anymore. <laughs> but the longer I meditated on these truths, our bad things will turn out for good. Our good things can never be taken from us. And the best is yet to come. Or I've meditated on these and notated them just slowly throughout the grand sweep of Scripture, the further I'm convinced that they represent the three anchoring truths in moving a Christian from fear to faith. So that's what we're going to do. Now, I've switched the order slightly. Um, Next Sunday, we're going to talk about our bad things will turn out for good. In two weeks, the best is yet to come. Today, we're going to talk about our good things can never be taken away for those who trust in Christ. We're going to look at an encounter in Scripture between God and a working man named Gideon in the book of Judges, chapter 6, verses 11 through 18. If you want to turn there, you're welcome to. And if you want to use one of the Bibles we provided, we have some here for you in these chair pockets. You're welcome even to take them home if you don't have a Bible. They're also at the end of these aisles, if you just hail someone and to pass one down to you. They're going to be on page 176, Judges 6, 11 through 18. Judges, by and large, represents an awful period in the Bible. See, God gave people this land, their own land. And His people looked at all the big cities and all the prosperity of the big cities surrounding this new land and said, I want to be like them more than I want to be like him. So, can we have a little bit of both? So they try to become like these cities that lived lives not honoring to God. And they fell away. And the judges represents this period where they fell away. God punished. They cried out for mercy. And then God would deliver them through a person known as a judge, a leader. And as a judge. And that's who Gideon is. He's one of these leaders. And then what would happen is they would fall away again. Right? Then God would punish, try to get their attention, and they would cry out for mercy, and then another leader rinse and repeat and over and over. Gideon's one of these leaders. And upon God encountering Gideon, he had been punishing his people through another nation known as the Midianites who came from the south and east of this new land that God had given them. Whenever God's people produced crops or they birthed new livestock, there were the Midianites lying in wait to eat it up, to snag it from them. This happened time and time again. And that's where we pick up here in Judges chapter 6, verse 11. Now the angel of the Lord came... And he sat under the terebinth at Ophrah, which belonged to Joash, the Abiezerite, while his son Gideon was beating out wheat in the winepress to hide it from the Midianites. In other words, he was beating it out in an unusual instrument. Usually, you would beat out the wheat on a threshing floor, but because that would be too obvious, and there were so many Midianites lying in wait to get food, he went to the winepress in a difficult way, started to try to beat out this wheat so they could eat. It's a fearful time, 
a worrisome time. So it's in this context that the angel of the Lord appeared to Gideon and said to him, The Lord is with you, O mighty man of valor. And Gideon said to him, Please, sir, if the Lord is with us, why then has all this happened to us? And where are all his wonderful deeds that our fathers recounted to us, saying, Did not the Lord bring us up from Egypt? Now, But now the Lord has forsaken us and has given us into the hand of Midian. And the Lord turned to him and said, Go in this might of yours and save Israel from the hand of Midian. Do I not send you? And he said to him, Please, Lord, how can I save Israel? Behold, my clan is the weakest in Manasseh. And I am the least in my father's house. I'm the least in my family. I'm the youngest. And the Lord said to him, But I will be with you. And you shall strike the Midianites as one man. But Gideon said to him, Okay, if I now have found favor in your eyes, show me a sign that it's you, God, who speaks to me. Please do not depart here until I come to you. I'm going to bring out my present. I'm going to set it before you. And you're going to do something miraculous is the idea. And the Lord said, I will stay till you return. This is God's word. From Gideon's own fear, we learn three things here. First of all, we learn to tell God your fears. We learn to take heart from the good that can never be taken away from you. And finally, we learn to turn from false fear antidotes. False things that we think could help get rid of our fears, but actually don't. So first, tell God your fears. One of the deadliest, most pernicious weapons of fear is its silence. Hides in the dark. That's where fear festers and grows. Nobody knows about it. We don't really want to tell anyone about it. We've never spoken it, therefore, nor brought it to light. But it is not, therefore, less real. Right? His disciples hear Jesus give 21 fear nots. There's a reason they're in His presence for all of these. Why? Consider all the times when Jesus' disciples whisper amongst themselves. They're mostly fearful whispers. Right? They fear giving the wrong answer. They fear uh, looking like fools. They fear what the religious leaders will think of them. They say something so new and so bold and so out there. So they keep their fear in the dark to fester. So Jesus has to rebuke it out of them. Fear not. And I want to say, first of all, we have a lot of kids in the service this morning because we don't have our, our uh, children's church. And to the kids in the service, just for a moment, I want to thank you for your honesty. With dad or with your mom or even with your uh, children's church teacher or helper, thank you for sharing with us when you're afraid. Kids are so great at this. They actually say, you know, I, I kind of don't want to do that. I'm embarrassed. I'm afraid. They show it to you in their face and the way they talk to you with that trembling voice that helps us adults when you tell us these things when you don't hide it but bring it up to us it it, it kind of jump starts us to share with you what our fears are sure we share, share them in a simple form with you a little bit we don't give you all the details but we share them nonetheless i just want to thank you just don't stop doing that being honest with us about what makes you afraid 
God loves that. It's important to do that. Gideon did that, and he boiled it down to two fears that he experienced. The first was, I fear my lifestyle will never return to what it was. Right? He feared that God wouldn't deliver them, that their lives would be just like God's people, the lives of God's people when they were in the desert, laboring under the thumb of the Egyptians. Generations passing by, just working and working and not enjoying the fruit of their labors. Will life be ever normal again? Will we just get to, to work our crops, go home, enjoy food, be with our families? Or do we always have to fear people robbing what's rightfully ours? The second fear, he, just to boil it down, is his smallness. My inability, my inadequacy. The least tribe, sorry, the least clan of the, one of the least tribes and youngest in the family, the relative lack of importance that's been drilled into me because I've been the runt of the litter my whole life. You're the youngest. Come on, go away. <laughs> this is big boy business. He's felt small his whole life. But the difference for Gideon is he at least verbalizes these fears, right? Out loud and to the living God. Or to his messenger. There's some question here about who the angel of the Lord is. And you'll notice, even in the text, it's switched between angel of the Lord and the Lord himself. And Gideon addresses him as Sir or Adonai, which means Lord. Many think the angel of the Lord here is a pre incarnate visitation of Jesus, the Son of God himself. And there's actually good reason to think that. But that's for another time. What we know is this is the manifestation of God's presence. And he admits this. He says, I fear. God, I admit it. What do you fear? What do you really fear? Take a moment. You got a bulletin when you came in. You got some pins nearby in these chair pockets. Take a moment, if you would, just to write down your fear. What do you fear? I'm going to list some fears as you do that. Just to help job. It may be one of the two I mentioned. Will my life ever return to what it was? Might be your smallness, insignificance. Maybe you say, man, I fear being myself. I feel like I've got to be different for different people just so they'll accept me. Maybe you fear loss, losing your job, or losing someone close to you through abandonment. They walk away. They're not going to love you anymore. Or they're not going to love you one day. Maybe you fear global catastrophe like the kinds we just mentioned earlier. 729 people in Ghana, Sierra Leone, Liberia, Nigeria have died already from the Ebola virus. I know some of you fear that. You fear not mattering. Maybe you fear death. Maybe you fear not having enough that the bank account will run, run out. You fear the unknown, the future. Or... A new fear, you fear missing out, FOMO. Early last week, I had a quiet moment away from a house filled with 24 children and their parents. That's right, I didn't stutter. 24 children and their parents in one building that was not a warehouse. And I had a quiet moment, and on the porch, I just told God out loud about six or seven fears of mine. I just spoke it. And i got to tell you guys, it was one of the more incredibly liberating moments I can remember. Fears had been there. Hadn't been any less real, but they'd been in hiding. I want to encourage you, 
Even as you write down your fear, even during praise and worship, again, in a little bit, speak your fear. Whisper it if you feel like that's more comfortable for you. Speak it to God. Tell Him your fears. Second thing we learn from Gideon is to take heart from the good that can never be taken. It can never be taken away. That good is God with you. God with you. Again and again in our past, we see God answer Gideon's anxieties and fears with the purest and most powerful good of all himself. Yahweh is with you, verse 12. Yahweh turned to him and said, Go in this might of your save Israel from the hand of Midian. Do I not send you? It's me. I'm here. Verse 16, Yahweh said to him, But, but I will be with you. He doesn't say, oh, oh, I'm so sorry. I, I know you're afraid. I'll, I'll just get rid of the army on my, on, you know, I'll take care of it so you can have a good night's sleep tonight. Don't worry. No, he says, no, you're going to fight. In fact, I'm going to shrink your army. It's going to be very difficult. You're going to have 300 people versus like tens of thousands. <laughs> but I'll be with you. He was given the same promise that was given to Moses and Joshua after him. But we take this promise for granted, the promise of God's presence, don't we? It wasn't always guaranteed, and it was certainly not permanent, not with God's people at this time. Moses had to beg for God to go with. This very book in Judges is full of people supplicating God, please come back to us. Bring your presence back to us. We recognize what life is without it. The Psalms were filled with the same request. That's why Jesus came, to fulfill that request permanently. It's said very simply by the Apostle Paul, 1 Thessalonians 5.10, one of my favorite verses. Christ died so that whether you're awake, whether you're asleep, you might live together with Him. As we wait to be reunited in the flesh, Jesus gives us the invisible presence of God to live within us in the meantime. The Holy Spirit puts it this way in the Gospel of John. Chapter 14, verses 16 through 17. Let me just turn to read that to you here. I will ask the Father, this is Jesus speaking, He will give you another helper to be with you forever, even the Holy Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive because it neither knows Him or sees Him. You know Him, for He dwells with you and will be in you. What a promise forever for those who trust Christ. You know, you might object to this whole premise. Our good things can and have been taken away in our lives. How can you say our good things will never be taken away? Each of us has experienced good things taken away, jobs, relationships, joys that were robbed and taken away when an experience or relationship turned sour. Wealth or even a loved one. As we saw in June with the rich young rulers reading through the Gospel of Mark, God challenges our standard of good with his own measuring stick. Remember, he says, the rich young ruler, no one is good but God alone. There is no created thing in this world as good as they are, as good as every blessing, every created thing is that is not tainted with sin. With the rebellion we were all born with in our hearts, The germ of corruption lies just beneath the surface of every even good thing. As the wise Pastor J.C. Ryle put it back in the 19th century, he said, you know, our best things 
are stained and tainted with imperfection. They are all more or less incomplete, wrong a little bit in motive, defective a little bit in performance. You get that? So the only really, truly, truly good, pure thing is the presence of the living God. But it's the one thing that can never be taken away from you who trust in Christ. You are guaranteed His most good presence, even if you might lose everything else. In fact, it's the one, one aspect of theology I don't think gets enough pub from pastors like myself and theologians that God, when he talks about this in Scripture, used as much permanent symbolism, permanent kind of symbolism, as was relative to the world and language of the New Testament. To assure us that by trust alone, you are guaranteed he will be with you. I want to give you some examples of this. And you can think, how, how might God say this today? Here's how he put it in the world in which these people lived. You are adopted by trusting Jesus. You are adopted into the Father's family. A permanent spot at the table. He talks about this in the New Testament, that the new relationship is so secure, it's like marriage. Which back then was far more secure than it is now. He talks in the New Testament about giving us the Holy Spirit to seal our relationship. as in a sealed document. This is so sure it's as if I'm giving you an official document sealed with my own seal. Legally and given to you. Affirmed by law courts everywhere. It's a deposit. The Holy Spirit is described as a deposit guaranteeing that we will be with Him forever. It's like a down payment where God says, you are entering this into my bank and it is secure forever. No one can touch it. You're heirs to an inheritance that I've already declared. In other words, I've already written out my living will and you're on it. One more way. You're the first fruits of the harvest of the crop. See, back then, the, the, the best of the crop was harvested first to guarantee its preservation, to make sure you got to eat the best that night at dinner. Right? And in the coming weeks, you are that crop. You're the best. God gets you first he pres- to preserve you. Think about all the areas of life that God tried to communicate security and the assurance that He'll be with you forever through family, marriage, the law courts, marketplace, banking, agriculture. It's all covered. Any area of life, you have to think, that's a, that's, that means it's really true. That means it's really secure. That means it's really the best. That means it's truly permanent. God exhausts every analogy to say, that is like my presence with you. That might not initially be what you want to allay your deepest fears, but it's exactly what we need. I remember as a kid uh, having a few fears. I had a fear as a kid of speaking up, speaking up in class, which clearly that has been, that has been allayed, that has subsided. So I'd like to speak for many a minute. I had a fear of snakes. Um, not like here in Cayman where every snake is non-poisonous. I love telling that to people. It's glorious, like the Garden of Eden. I had a fear of any conversation with girls that would last longer than 30 seconds. Um, I would just leave conversations because it was just uncomfortable for me with, with girls. I feared break-ins to our home. I was one of those kids. We, we lived 
at the end of a street, my family did, that was surrounded by woods, which was fun for many things, but not necessarily at night. And I used to think, uh, man, if we only lived somewhere close to town with like street lamps and actual neighbors within 100 yards and things like that, then those fears would just go away. I won't have to worry about anything, you know. Strength in numbers, community watch, that sort of deal. That would be great. And I told my parents this. Guys, can we just move? Get away from here? And uh, I was like, no, we have a mortgage. I didn't, What's that? I don't understand. But I remember when I was 10 years old, the most fearful day of my childhood. My mom was visiting family. My sister was at boarding school. My dad was supposed to come back and kind of be there that night. And we're going to hang out and whatnot. He's going to be there. And my dad's uh, flight got snowed in, in in Denver, Colorado, as he was heading his way back east and couldn't make it. And we're getting the phone calls, too late for a sitter and whatever. He's like, you'll be all right on your own, right? And when your dad asks you, like, oh, yeah. yeah, sure, dad, I'll be fine. I'll be good. And I remember putting myself to bed by myself, hearing the crickets and cicadas in the forest around me, occasional owls and things that would crunch. And I thought to myself, I mean, I could live anywhere and go through anything if my dad was there. It's just my dad was there. In our lives, you know, I think we want to get rid of the fire. We want to get rid of the wind and the waves and the deepest waters that we have to jump into that look scary. And we think, man, if I just get rid of those things, that'll calm my fears. More than anything, we really want and really need is a father to be there as we fight through our fears. And that's exactly what he guarantees. So we see Gideon tell his fears to God. God responds to fears with the assurance of his presence. But we find for Gideon, that's not enough. And for likely a lot of us, that's not enough. And we turn from the most sure promise and security we have through Christ the presence of God with us, his goodness, his power to false fear antidotes. That's the third thing this morning. There there are two false sort of fear antidotes that we turn to, I think, that are worth mentioning. One is conspicuously absent from this passage. We, We all know it. And one is very much present in this passage. So the first is self sufficient reassurance. I'll explain what I mean by this self sufficient reassurance. Pat's in the back. The most helpful reminder for fear and the one we most quickly dismiss, right, from fellow churchgoers, brothers and sisters in Christ, even our community, just remember God's with you. Or don't forget you're a child of God. And what do we say? Yeah, yeah, thanks, that's great. Now you're right. What do we say? Oh, that's, that's not going to get me through anything. Thank you, though. Well-meaning encouragements that we just often dismiss. We like what has been been used to build us up since we were kids. Anytime as a kid when we stepped into a new challenge, maybe it was going to a new school or meeting new people or going to camp for the first time, whatever it might be, we got that self-sufficient reassurance like, you smart, you kind, you important, to quote the help. Have you ever seen that movie or read that book? Right? You're going to be okay. You smart, you kind, you important. Like, yeah, 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 that's right. Remind me, we, we love that, we still love it today. Remind me of my intrinsic, built-up, self-earned worth. Tell me more. That's why I'm going to make it. And so as a good friend does that, right? We want to be a good friend. We do the same thing. 
No, you're ready for this. You're, you're, this is your time. This is the kind of thing that you're, you're great at. You're, it's going to be perfect. Don't worry. So if God employed something like that on, with Gideon, it'd be something like this, I think. Gideon, remember what he did with the wine press and the wheat? Gideon, you've shrewdly kept the family business going through creative means. And man, those qualities, they're to come in such handy when it comes to defeating this big army. Oh, ingenious and crafty one. He was ingenious. He was crafty. You've started your own business. But instead, the angel of God addresses him, O mighty man of valor. Which is comical, really, isn't it? O mighty man of valor. This guy's been in no battles. His title couldn't be more absurd for Gideon, who's the youngest in the family, who usually tended to more menial and domestic duties. You remember David, the youngest, tending to the sheep couldn't be less intrinsically worthy of such an identity, oh, mighty man of valor. He had no stripes on his army uniform. Didn't even have one. Friends, I know it is initially sweeter for someone to show confidence in you, to confirm your intrinsic worth, and that you really are equipped, you really are ready. I really believe in you. I do. I know nobody else does. I do. I know you want to soak that stuff in, but... Self-help does small things. I am with you does big things. Step out in faith. Without your weapons of defense to protect yourself, without your resume to defend who you are and to prove how important you are, all the well-meaning reassurances of friends who believe in you, and instead, God is with you. And go forth with that. The second sort of... um, I think false antidote we try to fight fear with. And it's here in this passage, just getting one more sign that everything's going to be okay. Just give me one more sign, God, if you would, please. Anyone ever asked that before? God, give me, just give me a sign. Remind me. Assure me. Throw, show me in a way you haven't before. Everything's going to be okay. God gave Gideon visible and auditory assurance of his presence. He saw this angel underneath the terebinth tree. He spoke to him audibly multiple times, right? Yet, he says, okay, just keep, I I got it. I've seen you. I've heard you. You're brilliant. (laughs) Clearly, you're not a man. But just, if I found favor in your eyes, show me a sign that it's really you who's speaking with me. Just to be sure. All right, don't depart. I'm going to go get something. I'm going to bring it back. You could, like, burst it into flames. You know, do just one more magic trick. One more tangible reassurance. The problem, though, for Gideon, as it's often for us, is one more assurance is never enough. It's never enough. Another miracle here for Gideon. He asks for another sign by way of dew and fleece, a second sign by way of fleece and dew. He asks for a little more gold from his army to try to honor his hometown because he fears his legacy might not last. Just in case for fear of offending others, he does obey God by the cover of night, though, so he doesn't offend people, because he fears people. Just one more sign. Everybody wants just one more sign that everything's going to be okay. What most of us mean is one more sign. Singer-songwriter Rich Mullins, who in my opinion is probably the finest songwriter of explicitly Christian content, because Christian music goes beyond just explicitly Christian content, goes to Johann Sebastian Bach and others. That's Christian, deeply. But as another story, another sermon. 
Rich Mullins had a great song called One Thing, and his, the, the sort of chorus went like this. Everybody I know says they need just one thing. But what they really need is they need just one thing more. How true is that? One more sign, God. Everything's going to be okay. I'll give you an example in life. You, you don't have money to pay a bill. And the due date draws closer. God, give me a sign. It's going to be okay. Finally, the money comes through, maybe even through an unusual source. To be clear, it's God. And we're thankful. And we're like, man, this is so amazing. And within the hour, our mind starts to wander too. But that just squares our bank account. I've got nothing saved up for the next bill. Where's that going to come from? Okay, God, can you just you know, make sure you provide one more time just to know you're real and you're taking care of me? But I just... And then if you get that, it's like, well, yeah, but then I don't have anything saved up to go on holiday or, you know, for retirement or for our kids. You know, like, are they going to go to university? You see what I'm saying? One thing more. And it happens religiously, too. We get an answer to prayer. We're like, thank you, Lord. So I'm going to learn prayer formula. I'm going to do it in Scripture so that I see more answers to prayer. It almost becomes like a formula. If I do this, God will do this. One more time. One more sign that you're there with me. One more felt experience in worship. Just to be sure that you're real, God. That's never enough. His presence, friends, is enough. It's enough. I want to close with good news for those who waver, for those who've wandered. God does give a sign for those who waver. Those of us who waver. Two signs, in fact, in the New Testament. First is predicted by the priest who dedicates Jesus at just two months old. His name is Simeon. And he tells Jesus' parents, this child is destined for a sign that is opposed. So the thoughts from many hearts will be revealed. People's thoughts will be revealed. Their truest hearts. You know what that sign was? The cross. The second sign Jesus predicts in Matthew 12 and 16 where he says that the only of evil and adulterous generations seek signs, but one sign will be given, the sign of Jonah. story of a prophet who got swallowed in the belly of a whale, spent three days and three nights there, and then was spit up, was resurrected, and likewise the Son of Man, three days, three nights, and then all rise. There are two signs we're given. Just to be sure that God loves us, He's with us, He's for us, He's not going to leave you or forsake you. The cross of Christ in his empty tomb. The cross is God's sign that we can be with him. That though we've rebelled against him and don't deserve to be with him, that we said we want to take your place as God, he decided to take our place and die the death we deserved. In the resurrection, it's God's sign that he will be with us. That everything he said about not leaving us forsaken. Everything he said about this is a, the Holy Spirit will be with you as a deposit guaranteeing. I have an inheritance for you. I will be with you forever is true because he defeated death and he rose from the dead. He proved to be God. Now, friends, I want to encourage you if you think you are alone in doubt or wavering, I'm going to tell you, barely a week goes by when I don't have to remind myself about the cross and resurrection. His, the historically reliable sources outside the Bible that confirm even that Jesus really was crucified. And they're there. Call to mind how the, the resurrection is real. It's the most rational, defensible miracle in the Bible. You doubt this, by the way? I want to encourage you to listen to my Easter sermon 
Well, don't be an atheist because of the resurrection. There's so much evidence in Scripture and outside of it for the resurrection. It's unreal. Maybe you have to encourage yourself with that. Maybe you have to encourage yourself with your testimony. My life has changed because of the cross and the resurrection of Christ. Whatever it might be. That's the surest sign that he's with us. For those of us who are prone to wander, I want to remind you that God's presence isn't dependent on yours. God's presence isn't dependent on your presence. I love this final verse in the Gideon episode. Gideon essentially tells God, look, I don't quite fully believe in you. I need one more sign. I'm going to leave. But don't worry, I'll come back. We tell that to God with our lives every day. And God, who is the same yesterday, today, and forever, through Christ, responds to Gideon. I will stay until you return. And God is like that. I struggle to obey God, for sure. I struggle perhaps even more with the idea that God will somehow be less there for me. Less for me if I don't show up with a good obedience performance. And I think, well, then I can't believe God's really with me. I don't think he's really there. And God says to Gideon, as he does to us, it doesn't depend on you. I will be here until you return. I'm always here. And the good thing, the best thing, is his presence can never be taken away for those who trust Jesus, even as you go through fears. Let's pray. God, we think we need a lot of things as we are fearful and anxious about many things. You've given everything we need to know that you love us. Jesus, your cross, which proved you loved us, arms open wide, suffering on our behalf to prove that you are for us, that you want to be with us. And then you demonstrated that everything you said about wanting to be with us was real and true and effective because you defeated death by rising from the dead. Thank you for the real signs that we can rely on, the bedrock of our lives, to know that you are with us. We'll go through fears, and we think we know we need all those fears to be gone, and we can protect ourselves from them. But what we really just need is you. And we thank you that through Jesus Christ, that's the one thing we absolutely and definitely not performance-based have. And we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.